when you just keep your eyes open, you'll notice that there are a lot of obvious truisms in the world. It's low hanging fruit. Other people don't want to go and talk about it. So if you're willing to talk about things that are unpopular here, then you can immediately get a big queue of things to discuss. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Vern Adelstein. I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner, and our special guest today, Brian Kaplan, Professor of Economics at George Mason University and New York Times bestselling author of Open Borders, The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and The Case Against Education, as well as a bunch of new essays and books, essay collections that you've been writing recently. So Brian, welcome back to the show. Your latest book argues that democracy's main problem is not that voters are selfish, but that they're actually altruistic with foolish views about how to help the world. So the book explores voter irrationality from inside voters' heads and shows how much more sense democracy makes when you stop expecting people to make sense. So Brian, if voters are so bad, what's the alternative? Our guest, Brian Kaplan, makes the rational case today for freedom on today's episode. Brian, welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Yes, the book is called Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Rationality. Even if there were no alternative, I think it would be worth saying this. I'm just saying, look, you're dying of cancer. We got no cure, but I just thought you ought to know just so you can plan ahead, know what the prognosis is. Uh, I think there is a lot that can be done. The easier things are limitations on democracy. So we have lots of checks. We aren't really fully democratic. You could just go and cheat and say, well, Supreme Court's democratic too. And it's like, well, actually it's not but maybe it makes things work better and we can call it democracy anyway. I also am a big fan of just government doing less. Once you realize what a dysfunctional system is, you tend to lose a lot of enthusiasm for being democratic. My colleague Garrett Jones's book called 10% Less Democracy. The 10% less is a good start, sure. So Brian, I, I, I wanna kind of ask you quickly about your methodology. So. From my understanding, the Brian Kaplan methodology appears to revolve around taking some unpopular truth and then presenting that in a more relatable manner to a layperson. So first of all, how do you manage presenting these very contrarian viewpoints respectfully, but also backed with evidence? Where, where are you finding all these views? I mean, honestly, if you're willing to go and say things that are unpopular, it's not easy. It's not hard to find things that are true to say. When you just keep your eyes open, you'll notice that there are a lot of obvious truisms in the world. It's low hanging fruit. Other people don't wanna go and talk about it. So if you're willing to talk about things that are unpopular here, then you can immediately get a big queue of things to discuss. You know, am I fat? Not polite to bring up, but it's an interesting topic. How fat is Brian? Let's discuss, right? What can I do to stop being so fat and so on? Now, so that's part of it. In terms of relatability, well, let's see. There's a lot of things that you can do. One of them is just have a sense of humor about yourself. I mean, a very big part really is just being friendly to people. I mean, you can go and have a very amenable view, but if you present it in a robotic, hostile manner, then people still won't want to listen to you. On the other hand, you could have an extraordinarily controversial position, but present in a good cheer and people are more likely to listen. Big fan of Dale Carnegie's classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. There's a lot of very common sense advice there on how to go and talk to other people. A lot of it just begins with everything true that they want to hear that you can concede, do it. You don't have to go and just say, no, everything you think is wrong. I mean, whenever I'm arguing with someone, I always do try to listen and say, what can I agree with here? Almost always, there's a bunch of things to agree with. If you are just honest with yourself, you don't have to, and nor should you just say every word out of your mouth is incorrect. So yeah, well, like there's a lot of things you're saying are true. So, you know, Marxists complain about capitalism. You say, yeah, well, living standards were really low in the 19th century compared to what we're used to. You can see why someone looking back would think it's really sad and it was, right? But <laughs> that doesn't mean that these lunatics have any, any practical advice on how to improve things. But at least to go and grant that they're not looking at things that are working perfectly 
or even well by modern standards. That's a good concession to make. In terms of other things you can do, I really like to just find thought experiments to get a little bit of distance. It's a lot easier to see that some other society more remote in time and place is crazy than your own. Um, often I'll just say, well, look, you know, we can all agree that that other side is crazy, right? Okay, so we're already on the same page there. Uh, then the question is, could it be that the same flaws you see in your opponents might also appear to you in the mirror if you would really look closely and without denial, maybe? <laughs> Dangerous ground. I was going to say, speaking of those lunatics, there's, I think they're called TUC. Somebody said they're like- Called, union called union. what? TUC here in uh, the UK. TUC. TUC, I think they're a union of unions or something like that. Ah. Anyway, they're they're uh, pushing now calling for a wealth tax. Ah. And um, so I was just on uh, a different podcast a couple of hours ago. This topic came up and I don't really know a lot about UK politics, but mm -hmm. they were saying that um, after Norway passed their wealth tax, tax revenues actually went down, mm -hmm. which, you know, for those of us who are aware of, I mean, even Art Laffer, let alone actual you know, mm -hmm. capitalist ideas would, would not be surprised by that. There's a brain drain for one thing. It's demotivating as hell for another. When you start sapping- people They're just mobile capital. capital. Just get it out of the country. You have to pay taxes on it. And then, you know, and anybody who stays with their capital, they're just draining it away and they have less and less of it dwindling. So they're producing less, incomes are down. So, um, you know, to your point about, um, you know, people aren't voting, quote unquote, selfishly. They're voting to render the rich unrich. Mm -hmm. That is a feature, not a bug. And when you point out that, look, you know, tax revenues went down, they don't care. You know, that's only a pretext that we're going to use this money to give, you know, free health care to the poor. The real, the whole point of it is to make the rich not rich. And, and obviously, uh, it's very common to get very wealthy people who are totally on board with that. So Bill Gates has been pushing higher taxes on the rich for a very long time. Same with Warren Buffett. It's not primarily a well-crafted plan to maximize the bottom line. It's people participating in a irresponsible process where you can shoot your mouth off and whatever you say, the odds that you actually change the outcome are very slight. So you can safely just express your deepest feelings, but at the same time, there's no need to second guess those deepest feelings. And that's the heart of politics is there's so little self-doubt so rarely is anyone saying, yeah, well, this seems good, but uh, what do I know, actually? I just imagine any politician saying, and I further want to say, what the hell do I know? Oh, whoops, no. <laughs> and every, and every policy I tried last session is already leading to disaster, so let's double down. Mm -hmm. What do they call it, a world without mirrors? You know, nobody, nobody's reflective on, what did I just do? Mm -hmm. Can you quickly explain to the audience what social desirability bias oh. is? and how that affects politicians and maybe how it affects me and you. Social desirability bias is the most underrated idea in all of psychology. It's a very fancy phrase for a very simple idea. The idea is this, when the truth sounds bad, people lie. Often the lies become so ubiquitous that you stop even thinking of it as lies and it's just saying what everybody says. This is, it goes back to things as simple as, am I fat? Well, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but the only one socially acceptable answer to am I fat? Oh, Brian, you look great. Oh, you're doing, well, you're beautiful just the way you are. Don't change a thing. Um, you can see this in lots of different areas of life. You can see this in things like voter participation. When you compare actual data on voter participation to asking people, did you vote? More people say they voted than did vote. You can see this for church attendance. More people say they went to church than, do, than actually did go to church. You can see this for things like, um, are you ready to die for your country? Uh, I actually did a piece where you have this stereotype that after the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, that every able-bodied man in America got in a line to volunteer for the military. I actually did crunch the numbers on that. It was just a few percent of all eligible American men that volunteered to fight in the period. And most of them that did fight just got drafted. But there was not actually a great desire among men to volunteer to get to the, to the trenches to get revenge on the Japanese at least not if it was their own necks that were going to be yeah. online. Or there's one other one. This one is ugly, but in a way it's so ugly, it just drives the truth home. 
if you ask people hypothetically, would you abort a Down syndrome baby, then only about a third of people say they would. But we have data on what really happens when people do have a Down syndrome pregnancy, and guess what? It's about 90%. I was going to say, there's, there's a, an anecdote that I use, um, which is why people vote for light rail. Mm -hmm. And um, what they're basically picturing in their mind is all these other bozos that are blocking my way with all this bumper to bumper traffic. They'll all be on the, on the light rail and therefore I'll be able to drive where I want to go without traffic. And well, that's really, that's really a self-interested story. And that's just what I'm saying is not what's going on. Uh, what I would predict actually is that people's willingness to vote for the rail has very little to do with whether or not they're going to use it or not. And in fact, you could go and survey people in the middle of nowhere in Montana where they're never going to get light rail anyway, and just ask them, well, what do you think about light rail? And you'll see very high levels of support just because it sounds good. It's not, again, a calculated plan to get anything other than a warm glow and a feeling of I'm a wonderful person and other people are going to like me. Uh, so I say it's not that people are, are like, ah, good, I'll, I can clear off the roads. You know, if they really wanted to clear off the roads, what they would say is either build roads, that's the obvious thing, or charge people for driving during peak times using electronic road pricing, which is totally technological feasible right now and exists in a few places, but hardly anywhere compared to where it should, because it doesn't sound good to make people pay to drive when they need to drive the most. Yeah, Brian, I'm thinking of some other examples as well. Like uh, there's modern monetary theory where they say, you know, this whole scarcity thing, we don't need to worry about that. Yeah. If we just print a bunch of green pieces of paper and hand them out to everyone mm -hmm. with a couple of accounting tricks, we'll all be richer. I mean, yeah. is that not an example of something that just, hey, listen, there is scarcity in this world. Not everyone can have everything we want. And yes. doing a couple of accounting tricks doesn't make people richer. Yeah, I mean, those people are one of the weirdest cults of kooks I know of. The fact that they've managed to somehow get on the edge of academia is, especially economics, is kind of embarrassing. I mean, again, I think if you really are paying attention, what you'll realize is that they are not nearly as crazy as they sound. It's really more of an effort to get really big government and much and, and a much lower role for the market through indirect, indirectly. Um, so again, it's one where, like you say, well, so... Like, won't this cause inflation? No. Oh, and if it does, what it does, we'll just raise taxes in the rich. So, okay, so that's kind of what you're planning on doing all along. And we just have to wait to get into the expected emergency if we listen to you before we start doing the other things that you say. I mean, in a way, it's sort of like how some far left advocates for Obamacare were quite frank in saying, yeah, well, this is going to destroy the private health insurance market if we push it. But good, we want it destroyed. Right. We want everybody to be. Um, you know, stuck in the same, same mm -hmm. system. So our same argument that we go about public schools. Yep. The idea that you could opt out if you have money bothers them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. I mean, it doesn't bother them that the schools don't teach reading and writing properly, but it does bother them that someone might opt out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there is really just this, you know, great disgust for markets, purely been, not based upon anything they do, based rather upon that just doesn't sound good. It's some rich people making money, selling products. They don't care about the common good. All they want to do is run their businesses, sell stuff to people. And even if it seems like, what's so bad about that? If you're in business, you might've gotten used to it. But these are not recent ideas and they're not uniquely mm -hmm. unique to any culture. You can just read like medieval writers in the church talking about the horrible, miserable jerks that merchants were. And the whole time it's like, you want to see the really horrible people, how about the people living in the castle up on the mountain where they're squeezing the peasants dry so they can live in luxury? But no, those people are okay. The people that we really hate are the merchants that are going and selling cinnamon to people. They're the, actually the worst people in the world, not the mass murderers living up at the castle. Right. What's really striking right. to me is how you know, Jeff Bezos is much more widely hated in the, by the Western left than the Saudi monarchy. It's like... Right. obviously like like by what possible measure is bezos not a better human being than mbs king or like acting king of saudi arabia and like you know they may say well like if we can do something about bezos we can't do anything about the saudi monarch it's like that's not why it's like, you don't like him because he, you know, he got incredibly rich selling people stuff they like whereas the saudi monarchy 
they just inherited it and that bothers you less even when they are the tyrannical rulers of a whole country rather than the innovative CEO of the greatest store that ever existed. So Brian, I want to ask you a couple of questions about schooling. You wrote a book called The Case Against Education. So let, let me fire back with some maybe uh, uh, immediate objections. So someone will mm -hmm. say, yeah, okay, I, I hear your complaint. Listen, in school, yeah, they'll teach you just some kind of random stuff nobody's ever going to use. I mean, historians, there's not that many historians, athletes who are, you know, world-class athletes. Okay, fine. Math teachers. Okay. Yeah. Maybe not so much, but isn't there a large percent of schooling, which is STEM, for example. So like necessary training for an engineer, well, you got to know how to do calculus and all this kind of engineering stuff. And yeah, okay. Maybe there's some percentage that's fluff, like theater classes and music classes, which most kids will never use, but you know, I don't know. At the end of the day, aren't the percentages kind of leaning more towards math and science and less towards music and theater? Right. So yes and no. It's true that there has been a substantial decline in the share of the liberal arts. So liberal arts BAs are definitely down, but there's only been a very tiny rise in STEM. So I think by the time that the book came out, uh, all of engineering counting CS was, was less than 5% of all BAs. So what's making up the difference? If STEM is barely anything and liberal arts are going down, what's making up the difference? And the answer is what I call the fake professional degrees or fake vocational majors, like what? Like psychology. Like psychology, it sounds vocational. Well, I'm training to be a psychologist. The problem is that every year we're graduating more psych majors than we have jobs in psychology, which means that hardly any of them could ever possibly get those jobs. We have to keep adding on further credentials to ration it. And then even at the end of that, most of them are never gonna be working as psychologists. So that's uh, you know, communications, that's another great one. It's a hugely popular major. Might even be like 10%. I'm trying to remember. You're looking at a communication yeah. major, Brian, right. so watch your language. Yes. Right. So guess what? Uh, the total number of jobs in all of print, audio, visual, online media is less than the number of communications majors who graduate every year. Therefore, most of them could never possibly ever get a job in that field. It profanes vocation, like it's vocational training, but it's really just letting people spend some years on a pipe dream and then end up doing some other job that requires a degree in something or other. So yeah, it's just, I mean, again, why, like, why is STEM so rare? Because they got standards that most people will never meet, clearly. Like this stuff is hard and people that teach STEM are less willing to lower their standards to get people to pass. I mean, obviously all professors feel like they're under some pressure to keep standards reasonable. But there are some fields like, say, communications, where they just put the standards almost down to the ground, and others where they've probably bent the standards a little bit, but nevertheless, they've got too much pride in their own discipline to do it. And therefore, the number of people in those fields stays quite low. Well, also, and speaking as somebody who majored in CS and did a lot of engineering work, you know, there's a very objective black and white line, bright line. Mm -hmm. which is does your shit work or not mm -hmm. and um yeah and although you know like there's always a way to lower standards like you could say sure we measure whether the program works but it's just a hello world program and we give you a ba for that <laughs> right yeah, no right you can yeah. lower the standard in the test or the degree but then going into the field ah yes uh, you know yeah, well, I mean, you might say that almost uh, like you like even in journalism right you say well the standard is do we get eyeballs watching our show Right? So there's always some kind of final test, unless it's just a nonprofit tax funded thing, in which case you could say there isn't one. Notice a lot of STEM people actually work for the government and maybe they have almost no standards at all and they can really basically do nothing. I've got a lot of grad students who work in for the federal government who tell me that there are multiple workers that only watch Netflix all day and do no work. <laughs> so that's you know, so, so I mean, like, I mean, I have had people go and like freak out at me because I'll give a test and I'll say the average is 50 and they'll say 50 is a fail. And like, well, 50, 50 should be a fail if the questions are easy, but if the questions are hard, then 50 could be really good. And there's a famous test for math geniuses where the median score is zero. Doesn't mean they're bad at math, right? They're awesome at math. It just means that the questions are so hard. Anytime you see a test result, you can always say it could reflect the difficulty of the test or could reflect the, 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 the quality of the students, worth keeping in mind. But yes, if you have no pride, then you can always get the pass rate up to whatever you want it to be. 
I mean, I think the real difference is STEM professors have pride that other fields do not have to nearly that degree. Brian, question for you. So what, in your opinion, is a reason that a lot of things that would seemingly be common knowledge or understanding taught in school, for example, Stalin and Mao's regime killed more people than Hitler's. Um, mm -hmm. well, why, why are some of these things not taught in school? Do you think there's actually a malicious intent? Hey, we don't want to teach people about communism. Or mm -hmm. do you think that there's just incentives in public schools or government run schools that kind of just don't end up teaching kids stuff that they need mm -hmm. to know? Right. So the first thing that's going on is just sheer conformity. People do what other people are doing. People do what was done in the past. That is still, while true, it's kind of circular because, okay, so like obviously the curriculum changed after Hitler. So why not this? And I, I think that the immediate answer is most people that are designing the curriculum don't know about this stuff. You know, like, I mean, I grew up in the 80s. The worst communist atrocity, atrocity I ever heard about was shooting people with Berlin Wall. I never heard about terror famines or mass executions or anything else. Right now, then there's a question, why don't people hear about this stuff? There, I think you do have to go to the severe left-wing bias of the Western education system. Um, so people that are very left-wing, they just don't want to teach stuff that makes their own side look bad. You now it's true, not, that's not always the case. For example, a lot of the best early stuff we have on communist atrocities comes from other socialists whose buddies got murdered. So when they start murdering your friends, this will often get people to stop being team players and say, yeah, yeah some people on my team killed some of my, of my friends on my team and they're not really on my team. Uh, but when time passes, then that goes down or even there, or even there it's like, but don't think the team's bad. It's just a, a temporary aberration of just the most of the people that are into this. Just, and Brian, no. can you tell us a little bit, I saw on your website, you have a museum of communism page. Mm -hmm. What's on there? What do you think are some of the facts that people are missing and, mm -hmm. and what can people learn on that page? A great question. That's something I started about 25 years ago and I did maybe one fifteenth of the project. And then honestly, I moved on with the rest of my career. I just have a hobby of studying the history of communism. The body count is through the roof as you alluded to. Um, you know, so there's the standard thing of just actual executions. Most of the deaths under communism come from agricultural collectivization, where the communist government says we're going to take all the farmer's land. And then guess what? Turns out farmers don't want to give their land. Normal governments would say, oh, in that case, well, we don't want to go and murder a million people and starve our countries just for this principle of no one should have private property. But actual communist regimes have generally said we would rather have a lot of people uh, kill a lot of people and starve our countries for a while than give in on this principle. Uh, so that's the big story for mass death in the Soviet Union, communist China, and so many other countries. Just like when you take farmers' land from them, this leads to an immediate crash in agricultural productivity for at least a couple a season or two, uh, which means that you're starving to death. And then once the government takes it over, Things recover somewhat from the chaos, but they still leave those countries, at least on the edge of starvation, and very vulnerable to other famines. Uh, there are people who say, yes, all true, but that shouldn't count as murder. Like, uh, yeah, I say that I think that it should. <laughs> right. um, yeah, in, the, in the law, we do have the standard where if someone opens up a door in a building, throws in a hand grenade without seeing whether anyone's inside, and then runs away, if they kill anyone, we call that murder. The law calls that depraved indifference. The person says, well, look, how can you accuse me of murder? I didn't even know for sure anyone was in the room. It's like, you should have checked. You should have checked. The fact that you didn't check means that we are going to treat this as if it's murder, which seems totally reasonable to me. In the case of Mao, he had some especially wacko ideas about how to grow food. Like he believed in something called deep planting, which meant that, well, uh, during the Chinese Civil War, we found that the more difficult our circumstances were, the more heroically we strove to overcome them, right? Uh, right, oh, great one. All right, well, would it not then follow that if we planted seeds six feet down in the earth, that they would struggle to get to the surface and would be greater seeds and greater plants than, than, than they were otherwise? Uh, yes, of course, oh, great one. All right, well, try it out and let's do an experiment. You try out Chairman Mao's idea and experiment. It doesn't work at all. It doesn't grow anything. And, you, and then you come back to him and he says, so how'd my great idea work out? Uh, yeah, it was a credible success. And so like I said, then, uh, well, in that case, do, do it to the whole country. That's basically the story, the story of the Great Leap Forward. 
mass starvation, like 30 to 100 million people, hard to keep, hard to know how many, but it's, it's the, the worst famine in history, worst mass murder in history. There are still apologists from Mao saying, well, look, he couldn't know everyone lied to him. It's like, if you murder people for giving you bad, <laughs> for telling you that your ideas aren't working, it is 100% on you when your ideas lead to people dying. This is just like throwing a grenade into a room without checking whether people are there. So yeah. Um, now as to like what the full story is, I mean, there's so much going on. I mean, Probably like another really big misconception about communism is the idea that they were great in industrializing their countries despite the human cost. I say, look, industrialization isn't even the right word. The right word for what these countries did is militarization, militarization. They are not doing what a normal developing country does, which is increase their productive capacity so that more people can have a higher living standard. Rather, what they're doing is starving their people, shrinking agriculture, in order to go and prematurely start building up militarily vital industries so they can have incredible armies. You know, like when Hitler invaded uh, the Soviet Union, Stalin had on paper the greatest army that the world had ever, sent, had ever seen. He had done a number of things to hurt quality, like execute 96% of his officer corps. But in terms of like number of tanks, number of planes, number of soldiers, number of guns, he had done something amazing, but it was not industrialization in the normal sense that we see in the West where rising agricultural productivity allows a shift of farm workers into industry leading to a sustained rise in consumer living standards. Rather, it's more just like turning an entire country into a slave labor army for military purposes. Right. Now, so uh, part of his great leap, want everybody to um, melt all the, or maybe he, he wanted something else, but everybody melted down all the uh, plows and all the farm tools, and then of course they couldn't farm after that. But then yes. they had a lot of a lot of iron, I guess, yeah. to make something else out of it. Yeah, I mean another piece of malice insanity is basically every uh, every major commune is given a quota for how much steel they have to produce. They don't even have the technology to make steel, so all they do is just grab a bunch of iron and melt it, and then put it in a big ball and say, "There's our iron. There's our steel quota. Can we live?" And then you all right, fine. But then you don't have the actual primitive tools that you need that were keeping you alive before you go from having stuff that is bad to having nothing at all, which is worse. Yeah, I, I remember uh, two things. One, in Stalin's regime, I remember he had killed so many of the kind of elite or senior officer corps that the average age at one of the Congresses was like in the 30s or high 20s, yeah. which is insane. Yeah, totally, I mean, totally I'm, believable. I mean, that, I'm, was, I'm, that was a big part of, of Stalin's plan is that he wanted to massacre everyone who remembered what had really happened during the Russian Civil War and once and then replace them with young people who know nothing other than the lies that he's told them. So, Brian, I want to jump to kind of what we're discussing here in general, which I would call public choice theory. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to bring up two things and I'll have you maybe define them and then I'll have Keith jump in. So what is public choice theory, first of all? And then maybe after you define that, what is a market failure and how does it relate to public choice theory? Right. All right. So public choice theory is one of many names for the economics of politics. There's a long list of names. So sometimes called political economy or formal political theory, positive political economy. Again, you could just call it economics of politics. The, what distinguishes public <clears throat> choice from those other names is just flavor. Public choice is is economics of politics that is closely associated with my home, with my current home state of Virginia, uh, very closely associated with the names of James Buchanan and Gordon Tulloch, Robert Tolleson, um, Ronald Coase as well. Basically, these are all economists that were teaching in or around Virginia in the 50s and 60s. And then they were pioneers here. Now, there's a lot of other people working this too. What's notable about public choice, uh, you know, this variant or this flavor, is it's more clearly anti-government and critical government. But again, all of it really comes down to just because government, could, uh, if it were run honestly and rationally could improve upon market performance doesn't mean that it actually will. For that, we need to go and look at what governments do in the real world. Uh, market failure, I mean, quick version of it is it's any time that markets score less than 100% on a scorecard of how well a market could possibly do. A, 
view that public choice rose up against was the view that anytime markets get less than a, than a 100% score on the test, that's a good reason for government to go and fix it. And people in public choice were saying, well, why don't we see what government fixes look like in the real world? Maybe they maybe they don't, it only improves markets from 70 to 72, 72% on the test, but at an enormous cost, maybe it actually makes things worse. So that's another possibility. Yeah, Keith, I want to send it your way because you wrote in your dissertation about bid-ask spreads and how widening spreads or tightening spreads can mean different things for coordination, coordination making us all richer, and how things like price-fixing schemes or minimum wages, how those actually don't help people, but they actually hurt spreads, and how the government will say, oh, listen, you know, people aren't getting paid enough, therefore minimum wage. How might that affect the market? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I, I, I tried to, to take a rigorous approach to, you know, this idea of what can the market do? Um, and and uh, sometimes I, in a sarcastic moment, would say, you know, market failure is when the market doesn't deliver, you know, in, in the style of Ambrose Bierce, the devil's dictionary, which I'm a big fan of, um, you know, the market doesn't deliver the outcome that I want at the price that I demand, you know, that's a market failure. Um, so people think, okay, the government can improve you know, the outcome. Now, I wasn't trying to look at incentives. I was trying to look at the ability of people to coordinate. And I said, um, spreads in the market, and particularly bid-ask spread, but also, let's say, location spread. And I use the example of the price of eggs in a farm town, you know, 50 miles outside of a city center. If the price of the eggs in the farm town is a penny and the price of the egg in the city center is a dollar, why is the spread so wide? And then I looked at a dozen or so, um, you know, things that policies that governments do all the time, always with the promise to improve outcomes and showed that it forces spreads wider, which means that people are actually being forced to discoordinate or, or lose the ability to coordinate. And um, this wasn't an incentives problem. This was a, the nature of government policy as such can't, you know, it's, it's kind of like there's a, a mosquito buzzing on your forehead. And the only tool that I have is a sledgehammer. I can't possibly help you by swinging that sledgehammer at the mosquito in front of your forehead. Only bad things could happen. I mean, the best cases I could miss, but then you know, worse if I should kill the mosquito. Um, and so that was uh, uh, you know, sort of a key part of my, of my dissertation was, was to look at spreads that way. Um, and then obviously, right, the incentives are perverse too. You cannot assume that everybody working in the government has this altruistic idea Oh, yeah, we're in this solely to make sure that the poor get better education or better health care. Everyone's gaming it uh, for all variety of, of uh, incentives, which are generally not well understood by the public. And back to your idea of democracy, so the people don't get it. Uh, these incentives are not widely understood and often very perverse. So we have a system that people can game. Why, why do we have a system that people can game? Wouldn't it be better you know, not to have that in the first place, less government? you know, et cetera. And I, I, there's a David Friedman uh, discussion where he's talking about markets and government. And he's saying, a lot of times when I'm discussing with people, there's something called the Nirvana fallacy, which is, hey, okay, in your scenario, the market is doing X, Y, Z. And then all of a sudden, eh, there's this issue. There's something that's not exactly perfect. All right. Then we have this perfect government come in and they completely fix it. Okay. So don't you think we should have a government? But then his point is, well, isn't that a bit of an unfair uh, scenario? Because Putting the word perfect and then imperfect in front of anything automatically biases the uh, the point. So you could have perfect markets where everything works perfectly, and then an imperfect government comes along and messes everything up. Shouldn't we have no government? Um, it, it's a fallacy. And so, Ryan, why do you think that people kind of fall for this either fallacy or systemic bias of thinking, hey, anytime something goes wrong with a market, we need the government. But anytime something goes wrong with a, uh, the government, oh, that's just a coincidence. You know, we gotta we'll vote in better people next time. Well, you asked me about social desirability bias. That's my big story. When, you know, I mean, like, this is like a general rule of life. If there's somebody that you already don't like and something goes wrong, then it's like, hey, that person's terrible. If there's somebody that you do like who makes a mistake, then it's like, well, you have to understand that they were coping with a really tough situation. So markets do not sound good to people. Rich people do not like the sound of rich people doing things and being successful. They don't like the sound of business doing things and being successful. So when a system based upon rich and you know, people who are rich and businesses well, going and producing things 
has any problem at all. People are very quick to say, aha, this is terrible, just as I thought. I mean, again, often the problem is not even defined as anything other than the motivation. Just think about all the protesters with signs saying greed on them, greed. And it's like, well, like, yeah, like, what do you think people running businesses are doing it for? They're doing it to make money. You're using the negative term there, but they're like, how does that show anything? You're like, it shows enough. It shows that they are despicable, as Daffy Duck would say. On the other hand, for government, people have a very different view of it. No matter how badly it actually does, it's still, it's us. It's our, you know, these are our leaders. These are elected by the people. Even if it happens to be temporarily in the wrong hands, still it is the embodiment of our nationhood. And so people are just very forgiving of government. Um, so, you know, Frederick Bastiat, the 19th century French economist, he is the story that a lot of my friends like, which is, well, people don't like markets because the, uh, so many of the benefits of markets are unseen. So many of the costs of government are unseen. And here I say, well, look, this is true for almost everything complicated, but still in the case of markets, people don't give markets the benefit of the doubt. If you just say, hey, well, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on. So, oh, well, in that case, no. But on the other hand, in the case of government, if you say, well, it's really complicated, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I, mean, I can only imagine how complicated it is. And so when you think about when government fights a war, it seems to be a total disaster, but they say, well, you have no idea how bad it would have been if we hadn't fought the war. We saved, like, like the result that you see that you think is bad, that's fantastic compared to what could have happened. And people will believe that crap. Right? Whereas if you see markets doing something and it seems like it's not even ideal to say, well, look, they're doing the best they could in a tough situation. This, oh, sure they are. You as your apologist for those greedy jerks. Yeah. I know Bob Murphy had an interesting episode about kind of Keynesian economics and saying, hey, listen, you know, pump priming and stimulus spending, you know, there's not even any empirical evidence that the Keynesians can kind of cite and say, hey, listen, you know, this was a great success for our model of, listen, the, the economy was going downhill. We pumped in a bunch of money and things just went great. And um, he, he kind of points to this saying like, you know, no matter what scenario happens, because economics in some ways is a social science where it's hard to actually do empirical testing, you can't say, well, let's just run back the 1920s, uh, time marches on. And so we said, you know, when uh, Janet Yellen and, and her husband, uh, I, I forget his name, Akulov. actually, but, Akulov, Akulov, Akulov. George, George Akulov, yeah. um, they were saying, hey, you know, listen, if the economy starts tanking in 2008, here are our projections. Here's how low we think the economy can go. Um, this is what will happen if we do absolutely nothing. If the government doesn't intervene, it's going to look like this. Now, if we intervene, there's a chance that we can actually save it and the economy will take along. Um, and so what did we do? We printed a bunch of money. Not only did the actual line of how bad they thought the economy would get would go lower than just the neutral spot that they had predicted, but it went worse than even their no nothing scenario, the hands-off scenario. Um, and so most people would say, well, oh my gosh, clearly this whole you know money spending, printing, borrowing, that, that clearly didn't work because the economy was worse than even in your prediction of doing nothing. What was their response? Oh, our models must've been off. The economy must've been even worse than we thought. Yes. So it, it seems like there is no way to kind of disprove, hey, more government borrowing, more government spending. And I know, Keith, you write about this a lot. You know, the government's borrowing capabilities are, of course, expanded by the Fed. And it seems like there are no people who say, wait a minute, shouldn't we just try the other way? Try a free market, try less spending, less borrowing, austerity, budget cuts? Certainly not in the area of money. Most people that are for free markets and other things really can't. Get, get their head around the idea of a free market and money and credit and banking and currency. It's, uh, it's that one area that almost everybody agrees needs to be centrally planned. And then, you know, the debate is whether it's Milton Friedman K percent rule, whether it's a, a certain rise in consumer prices, whether it's managed to hit unemployment or now the, the latest uh, um, cult, I guess, is uh, nominal GDP targeting, where, you know, that the, the, these geniuses can't figure out the right rate of inflation is, but they can figure out what the right GDP growth is. And if we just only centrally plan to that, it'll, it'll be fine. Yeah, Brian, I want to send it your way. I know the Fed kind of in some ways has a dual mandate, right? Hey, you've got employment, you've got inflation, all these things. Um, you know, I, I remember reading one of your things, you said, hey, listen, Keynesians, they should be the biggest ones against a minimum wage, because that is really bad when it comes to sticky prices. And if the whole Keynesian idea is, hey, you know, people hate taking wage cuts, Shouldn't Keynesians be against a minimum wage? So shouldn't Jerome Powell, the Fed, shouldn't those guys be against a minimum wage? Hey, 
let's fix the unemployment problem in one go. We'll just abolish the minimum wage. What do you think? I wouldn't be shocked if Jerome Powell actually does favor abolishing the wage. Uh, but I mean, what I'll, you know, just to back up, what I'll say is, you know, so I am actually fairly soft on Keynesianism as an idea. I think that it's grossly misinterpreted and twisted for political purposes. I do think that there is a solid core of it that, first of all, is in no way anti-free market, but also I think uh, the evidence is reasonably good in its favor, not perfect experimental evidence, but still. In terms of, you know, should Keynesians be opposed to the minimum wage? Yeah, of course. But they've got a whole theory predicated on the reason why we need to have government keep up demand is because we have downwardly rigid prices and wages. This is the whole way the model works is to say, well, if we have demand falls and, and prices and wages don't fall, then there's going to be falls in output and employment. And that all makes sense. Uh, but then once you say that, the obvious implication would be, all right, we never want to do anything that would increase that rigidity because anything we do increases that rigidity will make the consequences of falling demand worse than they otherwise would be. Uh, there are a few fairly desperate efforts to go and avoid this conclusion, but mostly it's just double think and they don't want to deal with it. But yeah, I mean, then more generally, like Keynesians should be strongly opposed to any kind of effort to push up wages or any kind of labor market regulation. What Roosevelt did during the Great Depression was encourage a massive round of unionization. Right? By, like, according to any model I've ever heard of, this is insane. But he did it anyway and remained their hero because in practice, Keynesianism gets twisted to just become a rationalization for left-wing policies. But there's really no logical reason for that. I mean, just in terms of the really most basic textbook Keynesian model, anything you can do with increased government spending can be done with tax cuts. All right, anything you could do with raising taxes can also be solved with spending cuts. It's purely a ideological coincidence that Keynesianism is associated with raising government spending and raising taxes rather than lowering government spending and lowering taxes. Uh, so, like, you know, it's again, Keynes himself, of course, was quite left wing. So, I mean, there, it's not just random that people think of it as a left wing theory. There is a reason for it. But if you just go to the actual core of the literal statements of the positions, it's quite different from what people imagine. I've been thinking for years about writing a paper called Free Market Keynesianism, just explaining all of the ways in which the ideas of the, of the, the core ideas, like the, the thinnest part, like the basic foundational purely, purely academic claims are first of all true and second of all ones that free market people should have no trouble accepting. But uh, so well, far it hasn't gotten written. Ryan, you will have absolutely two readers in Keith and myself. I think that'd be a fun one. Maybe Bob Murphy will read it as well. So uh, in our remaining time- <laughs> Yeah, Bob will kill me for it, but yeah. <laughs> hi, Bob. It, uh, hi, Bob. <laughs> Um, in, in our remaining time, I want to run through just a bunch of different ideas, kind of a hodgepodge, a collection of your different thoughts, because you write about pretty much everything. You've got a substack called Bet On It, hosted by the Salem Center. Um, I'm just going to run through a bunch of these. You can take as long or as little as you want. And Keith, I want you to jump in whenever you feel. So first, Brian, you noted on your blog, you said, other disciplines regard insanity as a puzzle to be explained. The economic way of thinking inclines me to wonder what the puzzle is. So, Brian, maybe can you explain how you think about insanity, mental illness? I know a lot of people struggle with this stuff today. What what what, what is an ec economic way of thinking about insanity? Let's take a really easy one, and then we can do harder ones if you want. All right. So, you know, alcoholism would be classified by the DSM, uh, the, the standard psychiatric diagnostic manual as the mental illness of, sub, of substance, uh, substance abuse disorder, right? But then it's like, well, so what is the disorder? Basically insists in drinking a lot, even though it really bothers your friends and family and messes up your career. Now, as an economist, you'd say, well, couldn't almost anything mess up your relationship with your friends and family and mess up your career? Like, what if you're totally into being a rock musician? What about that? Right? And you're not good, right? And like you just go down and say, yeah, like it seems like almost anything could be like this. So really, this is the disease of caring about a beverage more than things you're supposed to care about. Now, when you put it that way, it's like that doesn't seem like something that you should go to a doctor to diagnose. That sounds more like something for a philosophy class or for an ethics class. It's not really the kind of thing where a person uh, can say, oh, well, you have a disease. 
With cancer, you're going to die of it, whatever you do. Whereas with this, it's like, just stop drinking and then the problem goes away. I've heard people say, oh, they just can't. It's like, well, that's an interesting claim. How about we put them in a circumstance where the consequences of drinking are extraordinarily bad and see whether it's really true that they can't. I say, look, if you say that somebody can't, then, then increasing their incentives shouldn't change their behavior. If you say, like, I can't stop having cancer, and I'll say, I will kill you unless you stop having cancer. Guess what? You're going to have to kill me, right? But if you say, I will kill you unless you stop drinking, that's actually highly effective, which shows there is a really big difference. So anyway, in uh, this paper that I've written on, oh, sorry? Have you conducted that experiment? Um, So in my paper on the economics of mental illness, I go over a lot of bodies of experimental evidence showing that what people think of as mental illness is actually responsive to incentives, not just alcohol consumption, hard drug consumption, but you know, even things like hallucinations and delusions. When people are given awards or punishments for going and going along with them, uh, you see that the, the quantity you know, that people do goes down. Again, it's tempting to say, well, they're just pretending, they're just keeping their mouth shut. But at least there are a lot of delusions where if you really were totally sincere, you would have no reason to keep your mouth shut. So, for example, John Nash, the Nobel Prize winning mathematician, well, he's an economist, won, won the prize for economics. Anyway, so if you've seen the movie Beautiful Mind, he's a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, if you read his biography, one of his main delusions is just being an omnipotent being. And yet, this omnipotent being would vary his behavior in mental hospitals depending upon whether it was his wife or his sister was in charge. His wife was more sympathetic, his sister was less so. When it was sister, then he would go, oh, gee, the omnipotent being had better shut up and stop causing trouble. When it was his wife, oh, the omnipotent being can open up his mouth and cause a lot of trouble. It's like, hmm, if you really, if you were totally sincere on being this omnipotent being, you would just say, you know, snap your fingers, my sister now loves everything I do. But guess what? That's not what he did. So, So a lot of this actually ties in with social desirability bias. Because it's so much nicer to say they can't help it, it's not their fault, than to say they can help it and it is their fault. It's an empirical question as to which way it goes, but we can see, well, do they respond to incentives? And, and again, the point is not to go and torture people to get them to change. The point is to learn uh, what's really going on. It's a question of philosophy of mind. Is it really true that alcoholics cannot change? And I say it'll be a lot of evidence says they totally can, they just choose not to. Uh, now, why we have all this psychiatric language, I say, again, social desirability bias makes perfect sense. What happens to an alcoholic who says, yes, I drink, I can totally stop, but I choose not to because I care about my favorite beverage more than my family. Well, your family's probably going to cut you off real quick. On the other hand, if you do the classic, I want to change, I really will, I love you more than anything, that person will probably eventually run out of forgiveness, but they can, they can run it out a lot longer. And on the flip side, when you want to go and treat people against their will, it sounds a lot better to say the person is helpless and sick than to say they are, they are impossible to deal with and I can't stand them and I'm going to crush them, which would be the honest thing to say. Uh, it's called um, you know, the economics of sauce, S-Z-A-S-E, preferences, constraints, and mental illness. Uh, Thomas Sauce was the psychiatry professor most noted for pushing these ideas uh, probably his best book is Insanity, the Idea and Its Consequences. He also did fantastic books of aphorisms. And I'd say, actually, the books of aphorisms are probably even better than his other stuff. Like, he has this one aphorism where he says, uh, if you don't like the shows on TV, you don't call a TV repairman to go and make the shows better. Similarly, if you don't like a person's behavior, don't call a psychiatrist to make their behavior better. Hmm. Okay. Like, what, what are you getting at? So like, look, the problem isn't that it doesn't work. The problem is it's being used in a way that you don't like. A very different kind of problem. Okay, Brian, next one. Pragmatic pacifism. I've heard of pacifism. Mm. I've heard of pragmatism. What is pragmatic mm. pacifism? Yes. Yeah, pragmatic pacifism is pacifism based not on saying it's always wrong to kill anyone or even always wrong to go and fight a war, but rather saying that when we look at the historical track record, the record of war is very poor. And in particular, while some do work out, on average, they don't. And human beings are very poor at predicting in advance which ones will work out well and which ones will work out poorly. Uh, so there's the political psychologist, Phil Tetlock, who has a book called Expert Political Judgment. How good is it? How can we know? 
And this was one where he did an actual tournament where he asked a whole lot of political experts to predict the future. And then he waited for the passage of time to reveal what, 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 what in fact happened. And then he went in and looked at their accuracy and found out their accuracy was low. Right, so um, it comes down to you know, people support wars with great confidence, but what do they really know? It's uh, sometimes they're not always wrong, but that doesn't mean that they actually really have the ability to predict the future. And this is where I say, look, modern war always involves you know, either murdering or at least negligently killing large numbers of people. We don't have really good evidence that it actually improves the net outcome uh, you know, so on average. And therefore it is uh, the right thing to do is to avoid fighting wars. Uh, so that's the story. Uh, so again, I know each of those premises needs, needs to be argued for further. I'm really happy to do that if you're curious, but yeah, that's my story. Okay, Brian, I want to end our talk here with some rapid fire questions. Okay. Uh, I'll start with you. I'll end with Keith each time, but just give as long or as little as you want. Uh, these are topics of different areas. Okay, let's start. So, Brian, would you rather have totally free speech or totally free markets? Yeah, totally free markets, of course. <laughs> Keith, I'll send it your way. I think it's an easy one. <laughs> my, my challenge is I don't, I don't see how especially you say totally, I don't see how you can have one without the other. So I'm allowed to trade something, but I'm not allowed to talk about what I'm trading. I'm allowed to talk, but not trade. Like it's, you know, the idea of what we can have liberty compartmentalized in just this one area and totalitarian command and control over here is, is the contradiction in terms. So I mean, I would, the way I hear the question is you've got two dials, right? We've got the free speech dial and we've got the free market style, which one you turn up to as high as possible. I say a free speech dial is already pretty high, so we don't get that much marginal gain from turning it up to total. Whereas our free market, market dial is a lot lower, so we just get a much bigger marginal gain. I, I, can, I can offer one interesting anecdote, out. which is there's an awful lot of people moving to Dubai, which certainly does not have freedom of speech. Yeah. There are certain things you just do not open your mouth and say if you want to be in Dubai. And, um, and yet the tax rate zero, business regulations a lot lighter, although in some cases it's surprising that what the regulation actually is and what they make you do. Um, but um, a lot of people are moving there to make their money. But I think that a lot of people, you know, want to be there for a few years, make their money and come home. It's kind of like people who go and join a fishing boat in Alaska for the summers or like a fishing cannery. They make a lot of money in a short period of time and then, but they don't want to stay in it. They want to then come home. And so, you know, that draw to be able to make money, especially if you're European, where A, you don't pay taxes on whatever you make offshore, and B, you know, you're, you're essentially suppressed, you're under the government's thumb with all the crushing regulation and energy restrictions and everything else. You go to Dubai, you make a lot of money, but then they'd rather retire to France or Italy, where it's a lot more fun and drink the wine, drink the beer, and your money's offshore. Okay, next rapid fire question. So Brian, if you were to have all of your work erased, except for five articles or ideas, which five would you choose? Hmm. I mean, ideas is easier because then I could just say the main idea of each piece. Um, I mean, if you say like, which of my books has actually done the most good in the world, then it's almost certainly my selfish reasons to have more kids. There are hundreds of people who have had extra kids because of that book. So that's the book that I've had that's actually changed a lot of people's lives and created a lot of value. In terms of the most persuasive book I've ever done, I'll say it's Open Borders. In terms of just intellectually, the most impressive one, I think it's the case of Kids Education. So that's what I'll give you. Okay, Keith, I'll send it your way. All of your work is getting erased. You get five articles or five ideas. Which do you choose to keep? I think the anti-concepts of money, the, um, my dissertation, I think uh, yield purchasing power, I think, um, permanent gold backwardation and how to use gold bonds to revert Armageddon. Okay, all of those will be in the link in the description. Thanks, Keith. Okay, Brian, next one. Where do you think you can make the most impact and are you doing it? I call this the Robin Hanson question. Brian, I'm sending it your way. In terms of the most impact, you know, just based upon past experience, it's getting people to have more kids. I have done this, I could do more. I mean, I guess the main thing for me is Usually I work on a topic, I say what I have to say that I think other people aren't saying, and then I'm done and I want to move on. 
My hope is always other people go and do the day-to-day maintenance, which sometimes they do, uh, but that's where I'm coming from. Okay, Keith, I'll send it your way. What do you think is the most important topic you could be working on and are you working on it? I was going to say that's kind of an unfair question because I'm trying to change the monetary system and you know the logo behind you and your over your shoulder is the company that's trying to do it. So I don't want to I don't want to plug it too much here. Okay, you can find us at monetary-metals.com to join the movement. Okay, Ryan Kaplan, next question for you. We have a central planning czar. Who would you rather it be? Karl Marx, John Maynard Keynes, or Paul Krugman? Um, I'm going to say Paul Krugman. Uh, I wish I could get Paul Krugman from the 90s, but I'll still say Paul's better than Keynes and definitely both way, both light years better than Marx. So, you know, Kane, you know, Keynes and Krugman, I would put close, although Krugman just knows a lot more based upon a lot more experience and is a more logical thinker or was. And Marx is just a terrible dogmatic fool. So smart, but a fool. Okay, CEO Keith Weiner, we have a planning czar. It's not you. It's going to either be Karl Marx, John Maynard Keynes, or Paul Krugman. Who do you pick? It's kind of like asking me what disease would I prefer? Congestive yeah. heart failure, well, well, um, cancer, renal failure, or cancer. Um, I don't know. Roll the dice. <laughs> okay. Uh, Brian Kaplan, what is the best way to alleviate poverty and why aren't we doing that? Hmm. I mean, the best way I would say is what's doable without getting anyone else involved. And that is you know, bourgeois virtue. Uh, I'm a big fan of this work on the success sequence uh, for the U.S. It just comes down to, in the U.S., if you just finish high school, work full time and get married before having kids, then your odds of being in poverty are like two or three percent. Um, and this is advice that is good all, all around the world. You know, no matter how bad, messed up a country is, it is a good idea to be disciplined, hardworking, abstemious and, uh, and avoid and, and, uh, and self-control and have a good self-control. Um, I mean, so this is something that can be done immediately without needing anything else to change. In terms of what policy could go and do the most to alleviate poverty, that's definitely open borders. We know for a fact, if you just go and move, let people from poor countries move to rich countries, their, or their, uh, their income multiplies five to 10 times overnight. Uh, but that's not something that one person can do on their own. Keith, has send it your way. What are some ways people can alleviate poverty and why aren't we doing that? Well, from a policy perspective, get the government out of the way. I mean, it's interfering in every possible way from restricting businesses, restricting energy consumption, minimum wage, taxes, uh, you know, it's at a professional licensure, et cetera, et cetera. Just start repealing some of that crap. Individually, I, you know, I agree. I mean, educate yourself, in, in, especially in your, in your field. Work hard, be disciplined, save, accumulate, don't borrow, especially don't borrow for consumer purposes. Um, you know, all the standard stuff. Okay, Brian, back to you. Would you rather have a flat tax on everyone or a sales tax on everything? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, logically, they're actually equivalent. So I'd say I'm indifferent. I mean, it's, it just depends upon the rate. Uh, but, you know, the, the only difference in terms of ease of tax avoidance and enforcement. So um, I guess I would say that the flat tax on everyone, it's still, it's easier to avoid that. So I would go with that just because of the greater ease of tax evasion. Okay. CEO Keith Wiener, your way. Flat tax on everyone or sales tax on everything. When you say everything, meaning every consumer good or meaning all the producer goods all the way up and down the All of it, baby. Then probably a flat tax on everyone because it's not going to impact production as much. Okay, Brian, I'm sending it your way. If you could be one character from the book Atlas Shrugged, who would you be? Hmm. Well, let's see. Hmm. I mean, Ragnar Dennis Guild is the coolest character, the pirate, pirate who's going on the high seas. I mean, I wouldn't actually be him because I'm terrified of almost any kind of physical danger. <laughs> so I'm really more of like a Hugh Axton, a philosophy professor hanging out in the valley while everybody else gets the, get the, gets the job done. And I say, yes, yes, all very good. <laughs> okay, Keith, your way, your one character from Atlas Shrug, who would you be? I think my career has been more parallel to um, Hank Reardon that, um, you know, here I am refusing 
the idea that you know society is hopeless and it's beyond you know saving trying to um you know create new things and and fighting the world to some degree to get them accepted brian i sent it your way would you rather have global open borders for only women or abolish all labor regulations I assume you have to mean um, excluding the abolition of immigration restrictions. So yeah, so then open borders uh, only for women. Uh, not only is that half the world's population, but on top of all, on top of that, we've got something else uh, going on, which is once that happens, then I think it's going to be really hard to go and keep us away from full open borders. But yeah, I mean, I think that you know, as bad as labor market regulation is, immigration re regulation is ninety five percent of the badness of labor regulation. So we just get so much more bang for the buck. Okay, Keith, your way. Open borders for only women or abolish all labor regulations? I think if it was open borders for all versus abolish labor regulations, I might have a different opinion. But um, given that it's only uh, for women and a lot of women are going to stay to be with their men, I, I think that probably wouldn't accomplish nearly as much as it might seem. And so I'd say abolish labor regulation. Okay, Brian, back to you. Do you think behavioral economics will be more influential or less influential in the next 10 years than it is right now? Probably a little bit more influential. It's still on the rise. It's definitely slowed down a lot. There was a period from like 1980-2000 where they were marching and with great self-satisfaction and saying we totally changed this whole area. It's been gotten a lot less interesting, but you know, to a large degree, I think, because they're not listening to me. Because I'm, like, I'm a behavioral economist. I'm the one saying, look, how about we go and apply this to government too? And then we'll see that so much of what you thought came out of behavioral economics, it's actually the opposite. Um, so I think there is a lot of left-wing bias in behavioral economics that makes them unsympathetic to that approach. But if they really want labor economics to thrive, then they will go and turn their steely gaze upon democracy itself. I love it. Everyone, if you're a behavioral economics major listening, you got to read more Brian Kaplan. Okay, Keith, to you. Behavioral economics, do you think it's going to be more or less influential in the next 10 years? Definitely outside my uh, swim lane, but um, I, I, I think I'm probably with Brian that either it's not going to change that much or maybe increment just slightly, but there's so much, so much institutional inertia for what we have now, and particularly around you know, what we're talking about, what people say, this sounds good. It's not, you know, people want altruism, you know, the idea of sacrifice and the idea of someone's getting rich, it's bad. And um, is that, uh, you know, is that going to change anytime soon? Probably not. Okay, Brian, uh, I've got my second and last question here. What is a question I should ask everyone else who comes on to the Gold Exchange podcast? Hmm. Really good question. Very meta. At least one really good one would be, what's the secret to human happiness? Explain it to me. Okay, Brian, we're going to have to wait until you come back to hear your answer to that question. So Brian, where can people find out more about your work, buy your new books and find your writings and your AI drawing contest, which I think ends in five days. Yeah. Okay. So I've got my website, which is just bkaplan.com. I've got my Substack, which is bet on it. Uh, then all my books can be purchased on Amazon. So the latest one, Voters of Mad Scientists, that's only 12 bucks on Amazon, 9.99 for the ebook. I have not raised any of my prices despite high inflation, uh, or at least high, you know, what was high inflation. Um, there's, a, you know, there's three other books in that essay series as well as all my other ones. And then finally, yes, I am doing an AI illustration contest on freelancer.com. Basically, I... Many about 15 years ago, I wrote a superhero story of literary quality. I like I have high standards as a writer. I really believe in having original stories that say something different from what anyone else has done. I've been trying to get it illustrated for a while. What I'm doing right now is a contest where people are able to go and do any combination of human art and AI and seeing whether I can get something better than I've gotten in the past. Uh, my great friend Steve Kuhn, owner of Major League Pickleball said, hey, Brian, I'm really curious about how good AI art is. You know, can I give you some money to run a contest? I'm like, yes, Steve, absolutely. Thank you, Steve. So that's what's going on there. Normally, those contests, the great stuff comes in just the last couple of days before the contest ends. So 
I'm waiting to see what happens. Uh, hopefully, I'm optimistic, but we'll have to see. Brian, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Gold Exchange podcast, and we'll see you soon. All right, fantastic. Always a pleasure to be here. Great seeing you guys. Talk to you later. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold using and gold producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.